A quick note before we begin, this episode includes some language and themes that might not be suitable for children. Please use discretion. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, this is the ICA podcast, where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to Episode 2. The performance progresses with me coming and singing. This is the wool of the cloth from which the Redeemer comes. And that's a play on this is the wood of the cross uh, from which the Redeemer hung. Our priest would sing that usually on Good Fridays. So Jesus is covered with a cloth. And at every chant he would reveal a part of Jesus' body. So I thought I'd enter with that because it's it's almost like, you know, an entrance into a sermon in many ways. It's slow already. And that's opposite of what fashion shows are. Essentially, you know, it's it's almost like time. Consumerism wants you to be fast and it's you know, now we're just slowing everything down to this like moment, right? Where you are slow enough to actually catch the person's view. This is fashion designer and artist Lesiba Mabitsela describing his work Black Tie, which he created and first performed in 2017. And what I'm referencing is this idea of perceived or created masculinity. You are creating an individual. I've always thought that fashion is that. It's a conveyor belt of looks, of ideas of how you are going to see yourself in the future. Someone is telling you this is what you're going to look like in the future. We're just not aware of it. So you're being constructed. Your future self is being constructed. It's also just demystifying fashion. It's understanding what fashion is. It's a mode of the time. Clothing is there, but people were wearing clothing like this. So that's a performative element in, in the idea of clothing or in the, in the idea of fashion. It's a way of wearing. In today's episode, we take a journey with Lesiba Mabitsela, both outdoors and in studio, looking at three of his performance-based works, which explore his intersecting interests in fashion, in Christianity, and in how masculinities are constructed. Along the way, we'll also hear from curators and academics who have experienced Mabitsela's work. Uh, my name is Jay Patho. I'm the director of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. The evolution of the Seba's black tie was, it started off with the evolution of the suit, actually, as a symbol of, of imposed masculinities, imposed colonial masculinities. I'm Morgan Mjali. I am a performance practitioner and a theorist of um, contemporary performance, especially in the Centre for Theatre, Dance and Performance Studies. 
thinking about the garment explicitly as something that does something in the world rather than just is in the world. That's the door that this was able to open up for him is to really kind of take his own practice seriously as as a way of theorizing, as a way of creating knowledge about the world and reflecting on these kinds of histories and, and to speak explicitly to politics of fashion. My name is Ngone Fal. I'm a Senegalese a curator, a specialist of cultural policies. I was excited, overwhelmed, and yes, it's the best performance I ever saw. My conversation with Mabitsela began outdoors in Cape Town city centre. <laughs> so this is where we are. We are on Darling Road, which a lot of taxis and buses come through. As usual, the streets are buzzing. You know, people from all walks of life are walking up and down. This is also in front of the city hall where Mandela made his speech just um, after his release from prison. Um, and he has been kind of immortalized in a suit. Funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be getting to that. <laughs> we visited the public site of Mabitsela's early work, The Man in the Green Blanket, which formed part of the Infecting the City Public Arts Festival in 2015, and which reflected on a central figure of the Marikana massacre. On the 16th of August 2012, the South African Police Service, SAPS as Mabitsela refers to later on, opened fire on a crowd of striking mine workers at Marikana in the northwest province, killing 34 miners. It has become known in South Africa as the Marikana Massacre. But we started by talking about why Cape Town's Grand Parade on Darling Street is an important place for Mabitsela, both artistically and personally. So I like this place. Usually on Wednesdays and Saturdays, there's um, a uh, market that happens here on the parade where uh, people generally get fabrics from like shops. They get tossed away or they get bought on the cheap and they bring them to the parade and you are able to buy pieces of fabric at low cost prices. Um, but also at the same time, it's a space that everybody tends to meet within their you know, daily activity. And it's obviously right across from where the, I would say the transport hub of Cape Town city centre is. So your, your journey will generally start from that corner of the city. And you're going to go either this way or you're going to go that way or wherever else. Let's talk about the man in the green blanket because we're standing on the site where the performance wasn't exactly performed but it ended here after yeah. five performers moved from different locations in the city yes. and, and merged here on the Grand Parade. Tell me what that work was about. So it was the Marikana Massacre where miners were shot down in Marikana and the man with the green blanket was obviously the name used to uh, uh, describe Mgineni Mambushinoki, and I, I thought to create these mirages or these happenings of men with green blankets. But the, the difference was that they would have masks that had mirrors, two-way mirrors, so the performers could see where they are walking, but at the same time, individuals could super, see themselves. You mean that the passers-by would see their own reflection? <laughs> exactly. The How the performance happened was that there were five different spaces within Cape Town, where they would walk towards the statue. So they ended in this space, 
um, on the steps over here. They were coming from Sipoen, coming from Woodstock, they were coming from Friario. And when the performers arrived here to the mm. Grand Parade, was there a kind of intentional audience waiting for them or an audience made up of incidental passers-by? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, what the infected in the city wanted was to make sure we, they knew where we were. The performance wasn't a entertainment for me. It, it, it generally had to be a happening. So I had to take it away from this idea of a perceived audience very early on. And it's something that I've consciously tried to do, try and insert what we try and do as much as possible in normalcy of life, because it can get devalued very easily once we start to think of the commercial aspects of performances. So, yeah, the audience, they could follow online, so the digital aspect was there as well. But other than that, there was no intention to essentially meet the requirements of the festival. It's in the name, it's infecting the city. And so there are other audiences who are not in the city center who will never get a chance to see these or interact with it. And so the idea was to collectively engage the city of Cape Town, Sea Point, um, Kloof was there, uh, Long Street I'm sure was touched by it, and Woodstock was definitely touched by it. That was a really interesting interaction. As even a point where I walked into the police station and the reaction kind of just, yeah, I kind of had this very strong sort of relation to the actual massacre. The aggression, the, the, the aggression that was met by it. I mean, it was met with the, a sense of bemusement in the beginning. <laughs> and people were kind of laughing because obviously they did not know anything about this performance and probably they didn't, it didn't, click with them that it, 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 it was about the Marikana mask and then as I was there I could feel one of the cops came to me and said you lost my son you lost my son you lost my son you lost my son but then there was all these talks about you know being a foreigner or Zimbabwean and whatnot. I like Zimbabwean definitely <laughs> <laughs> and then pushing me out of the of the police station and as they were pushing me out the one guy held me by my back exposing my butt crack and all these types of things and then he'd push me to the commander's office as well and then, yeah they would kind of laugh at that whole situation i did my last dance with the fist up and then i walked on and that was a kind of like you know, this is a very humiliating sort of situation but it was an intentional point to confront saps at the time i'm interested to know your take on the lasting impact of, of public performance as, as, as an artist who creates works in public spaces because it, it exists in the moment of its happening and then almost straight away has to either move on or disappear or be deconstructed. H how do you feel about the ability of public performance, public arts to have a kind of lasting effect? I mean, if you think about it, we, we tend to follow routines, right? Everybody, wherever you are, you're walking from here, you're going to school, you're going to shops, you're going... So there's a lot of things that doesn't necessarily catch the eye of many people. The power of uh, public art is that it is able to disrupt in that moment and get people to get out of the bubbles that they are in, get out of the routines that they find themselves in. To consider, for instance, if you're considering the performance, at that one moment you're thinking about something much deeper than your daily experience, and it allows you to, it allows individuals to engage with the history of the space. 
Okay, should we get in this car? Yeah. I went home and when was it? In June I went home and I spoke to my father. He's got dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, one of the two. I think it's Alzheimer's. And he'd always talk about Lady Selborne. So I'd ask my mom about Lady Selborne. And she says it's a particular place in Pretoria that my dad and his yeah, siblings were moved from just on the edge of Pretoria CBD and they were settled in Uttridgeville and so he, he, he fondly remembers this space but it highlighted you know also another part of history the silenced removals because we always like focus on District 6 there's many removals around the, the country that we're not necessarily aware of um, of late I would say in terms of my work there's a lot of um, processes where I'm thinking about my father and his influence on, on me I've been trying to delve a little bit deeper into that. In many ways, me going home is uh, to, to find out more and maybe um, because he's losing his memory, it's also good to uh, resurface some of his memories and make those memories live in the work. Tell me a bit more about like, where you grew up and, and the household you were raised in. I was born in Pretoria. I don't quite know where in Pretoria. <laughs> I always used to say Soshanguve, but that's where I was raised until I was five years old. My parents and I, we moved to Midrand, which was one of the first mixed-race societies in South Africa, post-apartheid. I was living there for most of my life. And then I moved into Cape Town in 2011. I was raised to a deeply religious man and my mom, who was a workaholic, and I was also an altar server. So for many years, my life was about the church. It was an interesting upbringing, I would say, um, living a life where, you know, you, the, your parents want the best for you, so they moved away. But also as a kid, dealing with those issues of not quite fitting in being that black boy with the grouping of white friends, not being able to speak English properly, and then subsequently not being able to speak my own language properly. So my father is Betty, and I guess by custom I should also identify with being Betty, but my mom is Zwana, has a Zwana background, and I would say I speak better Tswana than I speak Betty. So I identify with being a Tswana more than I do identify with being a Betty. Those sorts of situations become a little bit fuzzy for me because from what I've learned is that my father's family are not as connected as my mother's family. So it makes it harder to kind of, you know, engage with where I'm from or where my grandparents were from. You said in an interview, my father is petty, but he doesn't identify as petty in the traditional sort of way. Mm. He is Roman Catholic. Mm. My brother and I never interacted with our cultural traditions. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, he'd always talk about his father who, you know, practiced spiritual sort of rituals. Ditaulas, maybe he would say it. Um, we grew up as Roman Catholics. He was very proud of it. He's still very proud of being a Roman Catholic today. 
Um, and I don't know, I'm, I can't quite put a finger on what that meant to him at that time. And it's still one of those things that I'm trying to discover. His history, his upbringing, and why that sort of religion held a lot of significance for him. Your work, especially your recent work, deals so much with masculinity and being indoctrinated into different forms of masculinity. Mm. I'm interested to know what model of masculinity was put before you as a child. Mm. (laughs) So my father, I grew up seeing him cook. He's a soft-spoken person as well. So he didn't rule with an iron fist. Um, But he was more of a, I would say, a a, a sort of like, the word is not effeminate, but he was was this this very reserved genius, if I have to put it that way. So that was my immediate introduction to what masculinities can look like. But also, I mean, what you watch on TV, it's it's, it's Rich Forrester. I came to define myself around it, that guy. You start to see, based on what other people experience, their masculinities by, you know, the jock life or the skateboarders. Priesthood is also a form of masculinity that people don't understand. I was surrounded by priests, first name basis. So, yeah, I think that's what I remember, the many different layers of masculinity, because it's like... You're masculine in one sense as a black person, but you can be masculine as a black person in a suburb, which is vastly different from being masculine in a in, in a township, for instance. So to move to talking about your career in fashion and, and how that started, where, where do you think you first developed your interest and your love for fashion? Um, Rich Forrester again. <laughs> I don't even know who Rich Forrester is. Really? No. Um... He's the hero of The Bold and the Beautiful. It's a soapy. I do know The Bold now and the know. Beautiful. <laughs> Me? I'm offering my services as lead designer. With your business experience and my creativity, what a perfect partnership that is. Bitch, there would be too much to do. We would have to find <laughs> Yeah, so basically that's who he is. I think, yeah, that's from then I started to experiment with designing because I, I connected with the, the act of drawing or creativity experimented with design, I experimented with like cutting patterns out. But I always liked clothing. I always liked going and getting new clothes, new shoes. I I definitely gravitated towards the pragmatic approach of fashion. And then I went and did fashion. And then I immediately got connected to the other side, the non-pragmatic side of fashion, which is couture, which is avant-garde Japanese design. The world of fashion is often thought of as feminine terrain. Mm. I wonder, was there any conflict of identity dealing with your masculinity when you developed an interest in fashion, maybe within yourself or by others? Yeah, I've had to deal with being called gay when I was younger. So (laughs) there was a lot of that happening. That essentially influenced the type of clothing I would come to try and design and trying to add a very masculine layer to the art of clothing design. So it was certain things I was grappling with within myself. You know, what does a man that creates clothes look like? 
and I had a very clear idea. It was Rich Forrester. <laughs> he he designed wedding dresses. He designed women's wear, but was the man, you know, the manliest of men. But how other people perceived men that made clothing was totally different. It was kind of like, how do you separate yourself from that? You grew up knowing that actually that's besides the point, whether you're effeminate or not, your sexual orientation doesn't necessarily dictate what type of a man you are, and it doesn't dictate what type of clothes you make. And it should not dictate what type of clothing you make. Yeah, and I learned a lot about masculinities in my first year at TUT. I think I took the decision at the time because we were rounded up as first-year students to help with dressing models. And I don't tell this to many people. This is that experience, you know, okay, just after puberty, I would say, was a was a mindfuck in many ways because it's like here's this model that you're probably like fantasizing about in magazines the next thing you're at sports illustrated dressing you know the top sports illustrated model and it's like how do you deal with that situation this was when i was what 19 so it's a very silent sort of professionalism that i started to kind of engage with It was 2013 that you took part in this public exhibition that was curated by Kanyisile Mbongwa mm-hmm. called Demonstrations Performing Being Black, which explored the commodification of township blackness and critiqued township tours. And it seems that that was one of the first moments where you brought performance into your practice as a fashion designer. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I never really had the performative element until I was asked to take part in the exhibition. I was in that space of experimenting with grey blankets already. And then she inserted me into the gallery. So I had to kind of internalise what or how my garments could be perceived from then onwards. The idea of walking comes from me walking in Cape Town a lot. Walking also kind of just suggests the sense of poverty. It almost has an omnipresent sort of meaning. It's, it's, It's... what you see in the streets. So you see a guy wearing a blanket, but he's walking in a particular way. And that's when I started to experiment with walking, and that got the man with the green blanket, the walking, the many routes that I would walk to get to the city centre. And then obviously that later kind of became a template or part of the template that I use. Walking was used in black tie a lot, that slow walking. For her to insert me in that sort of way meant that I could also be someone who is performing in the everyday. And so that that theory comes in as well into this idea of how dress kind of influences masculinities in the everyday. So what are you doing in the everyday? Just like walking, what are you doing in the everyday that could be influenced by particular things? Mabitsela and I returned to his performative work, Black Tie, which you heard him describe at the beginning of the episode. The first iteration of the work was performed at the 2017 ICA Live Art Festival as part of the practical component of Mabitsela's master's degree. 
and it took place at Six Spin Street, which is a gallery and restaurant in Cape Town. Black tie begins like a fashion show, with models walking around the room, as if on a catwalk, to the music of Bach's Toccata and Fugue. The audience is seated in the centre of the room, and also at its edges. Their chairs demarcate the path of the catwalk. It's Mabitzela who starts the model's procession. He moves through the catwalk holding a thurible like a priest would in a Catholic mass, and dispenses incense from it. He's then followed by four black male performers, who, each in turn, make their way slowly through the room, looking straight ahead or sometimes directly at the audience, wearing the garments which Mabitzela has created. The performers are walking with jackets made from blankets? Yeah, it's jackets made from blankets that will be used to identify when someone has gone through the rites of fashion to be a man. And it's accompanied by skirts made from a tartan. That also references my upbringing because as a petty man, you would be required traditionally to wear a kilt, a Scottish kilt, to signify your manhood. And it's a question. Why are we wearing it in the first place? You know, what does it necessarily represent? But also it's, it's, it's clear that skirts were not necessarily seen as emasculate before a particular time in history. So it, it, it talks about those conflicts as well, you know, this idea that men can't wear clothes that are considered to be in excess. Projected onto two big screens in the background, we watch archival footage of an old white European tailor making a suit by hand. He draws the pattern, then measures and cuts, measures and cuts some more. Dr. Mbongeni Mchali, who co-supervised Mabitsela's master's thesis, reflects here on the productive tensions at work in black tie. There are two things that are happening. One, we're looking at a European man who's considered, you know, at the top of the game, creating garments in a tradition that has been the same for centuries upon centuries. And physically, as he's making them, he's, he's rehearsing these repertoires around actual garment construction. So this is like how to hold a needle and how to do a stitch. Like these, these bodily things that are passed down through rehearsal and practice. And then the second thing that I was really fascinated by was this tension between this, this, between this authoritative way or understanding of how garments are produced and Asiba's own position in his own body as a black man in South Africa. I, I think that there's a really interesting conceptual relationship that I suddenly saw at play there where we're seeing somebody who's been trained in the same way taking, quote-unquote, the master's tools and using them to build a different kind of house entirely. One of the models carries a Bible, and towards the end of the catwalk, he opens the Bible carefully, tears out a section, and lets the pages fall to the ground. All the while, the tailor behind him is pinning, cutting, folding, stitching. And what I'm referencing is this idea of perceived or created masculinity. You are creating an individual. I've always thought that fashion is that. It's a conveyor belt of looks, of ideas of how you are going to see yourself in the future. So you're being constructed. Your future self is being constructed. Missionary activity was that. You know, when they put you in clothes, once you have been converted, you are constructed to look like this individual. 
And then the video projection changes to black and white adverts for perfume and for alcohol. And the soundscape changes too. We hear the clip from the TV version of Alex Haley's novel, Roots, where the slave master whips Kunta Kinte repeatedly and demands that he call himself Toby. When the video changes, now it's like the suit has been made and it's been made in all these different layers, but it's built on this background of ideologies, of these these marketing campaigns that advertise alcohol, that, you know, advertise how men act towards women. It holds the, the white lady up, you know, as this sort of symbol of affluence. It kind of devolves as well. It, 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 it gets deconstructed or it just melts down to this point where it's just raw masculine energy with the pornography in the background. The repetitive whipping and groaning jars with the highly stylized black and white shots of the video projection in the background. Finally, at the work's climax, the models re-enter the room together in a kind of procession, but this time they're tied to one another with a long black rope that is at once a fashion accessory around their necks, but also a chain and a noose you're seeing these black men walking uh, around the fashion um, the the catwalk rather tied up in a way that has this sexual connotation but at the same time when you look at contemporary life BDSM is fashionable so there's always those, those sorts of relations that are going on how do you react to naked men but it's also the the sonic aesthetics. You're hearing pornography at the same time and you're looking at someone across the room and you're like, how do you negotiate where the eyes go? As Black Tie draws to a close, the sounds of whooping transition into the moans of pleasure and pain from a BDSM pornographic film. I spoke with director of the ICA, Professor Jay Pather, at the site where Black Tie was first performed about how clothing, movement and space work together to create the mood of the piece. The combination of the disruption of the suit together with these other props that he had, all all of those elements were extremely rich and extremely strong, even in the very first rehearsal in the small small classroom. And I think over that time, into the development of the space here, at Six Spin Street, when he faced it, was <laughs> he was it just suddenly became so real. I remember even the performers having a bit of a moment of this um, this nakedness, you know. And it's not just that they were some of them were kind of physically half naked, but the nakedness of what it means to perform on a ramp because you're moving really slowly and if someone is looking at you you are dead sure that they're focusing on the clothes and not you but this was the other way around we were looking at them as performers there was a kind of nakedness that they were experiencing which I think even surpasses what a regular performer does I think Lucifer did really really beautifully in evoking the, the semblance of a ramp using this, the pillars here and using the glass windows. There was just something about this space that really contributed to holding the surge of emotion that started and slowly began to come through. The models stroke performers spent time and 
rhythmically played out this unfolding of years and years of slavery into years and years of colonialism into the current moment, which is when masculine issues are being heavily challenged. There's a footnote in, in your master's thesis that I find fascinating and it's in the section of your dissertation in which you discuss black tie and you write, I found that the most intimate discussions around performances of masculinities occurred in the conversations between us, meaning between yourself and, and the performers. One of the performers felt a sense of anxiety when tasked to work with Christian symbolism as his father is a practicing pastor. I felt an instant connection. Tell me more about the anxiety of, of working with religious objects and symbols. The thing is, you are, you are, you know, at the same time holding what's closest to you and yet rejecting what's closest to you. Everything that you have been has been in that, you know, it's being questioned in that one moment. This idea of us tearing the Bible it was like so jarring because it's a symbol of strength of so many people. And you doing that already, you know, you're cast into this box that you may not be able to come back from. So what is it in the relationship between Christianity and blackness and masculinity that you are trying to get at in the piece? It's hard to be uncritical about it. It's, 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 it's critical. It's critical. But at the same time, you recognize it's good. That when I went home, I realized what it was to my father. It kept our family together. But I, I always felt uncomfortable with the power maybe religion has on black society. That's maybe it. And in many ways, I'm just trying to understand it. But it does come off as critical. There's discomfort there's absolute discomfort about a lot of things. And I related to this whole idea of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of late, looking at labor. You know, black men have been seen as the sacrificial lamb in so many instances. How did the audience respond to the performance of Black Tie? It's been a mixture of things. White guilt is one of them. Um, reactions of anger from black societies, even in the Netherlands, is one of them. You know, you tear a Bible, people walk out. The one I didn't quite expect was individuals having a spiritual connection with the work. You know, I heard about someone who was rooted on their seat and had to be counseled into negotiating what they were going through with the elders. A lot of people have been uncomfortable and it has intersected them in many different ways that I could never have imagined. Because as an artist, you want to make sure that the work was effective. But the one word that comes out e too easily, maybe, is, did you enjoy it? And I got reminded that it wasn't a performance to enjoy. Let's talk about facing men. We gather here today to begin a journey known as Vetting Men via Dallarosa. I, I saw this work performed at the launch of the Live Art Network Africa, which was hosted by the Institute for Creative Arts in Cape Town in 2018. Let's start with the title of the work. Tell me about the title, Vetting Men. So Vetman was a brand that started to get 
a lot of attention at, around the time. Vêtements in French is French for clothes, and obviously I'm 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 I'm, I'm referencing clothes a lot. The suit was the main protagonist in this story, but at the same time, it, it offered itself a very interesting reinterpretation as a performance of vetting men. So clothing being used to drill an individual, clothing religion being used as um, tools to shape men, shape masculinities. And so vetting men came out. The stations of the cloth are an old tradition of our movement towards liberation, to bring attention to the legacy of the military uniform. It's unassuming cousin, the formal suit. Performance is basically a, result, a Violence in the reinterpretation of um, the Stations of the Cross, but it's also known as the uh, Via Dolorosa, where in church you map the process of when Jesus was crucified. Let us pray. Hail to the dandy, obedient and to his master. Gentleman, by your burden and reimagined self, you have set us free. Help us that we may become aware of your sacrifice and strive in order our lives. We will now join the gentlemen in the garden. Talk me through some of the some of the statues and the sites that formed these stations. I kind of use Jan Smuts as the first wave, wipe his hands clean from from a black man's persecution. The next statues were war iconographies. It was this idea you're you're taking on that baggage. So the second one was where the the memorial of World War One, violence and war is one of those things that are symbolic of masculinities. He travels then through the garden and he falls for the first time. I took a walk with Mabitsela's supervisor Mbongenium Chali, in the company's garden, which is the public park in central Cape Town, where vetting men was performed in 2018. Okay, so we are currently retracing the steps, or at least some of the steps of Lesiba Mabetsela's work, Vetting Men. And it moved from the University of Cape Town Hidding Campus, where we've just been, and into Company Gardens, where we are now. Set the scene for me. What what did you see unfold that afternoon? So the concept, broadly speaking, was initiated with this idea of the suit, of clothing, and of imagining other kinds of alternatives. So kind of picking up on the Stations of the Cross and that Easter procession and the idea that symbolically Christ is moving through these various trials. So he then mapped that structure over the performance and used each station of, not the cross in this particular sense, but evoking that history, both in the language that he was using, the kinds of, the use of of hymnals, of audience participation, suddenly opened out the boundaries of the performance. So we weren't just watching people performing for us, but the audience became implicated in that performance as well. The figure of Christ was reimagined as a black man, and he's kind of carrying this, this historical burden with him, and that burden is a burden of garments. The first station, the gentleman is condemned to death. We adore you, O gentleman, and we praise you. Because by your holy cloth, you have redeemed the world. Here is Senegalese curator Ngone Fal, recalling her experience of watching vetting men. 
I was quite curious to see the performance because I liked the idea of this kind of procession in the streets of Cape Town at sunset. My glory is crazy. And you're crossing the, the garden and you have people in the garden who are just walking by and they started to be curious and then they just followed us. So as long as we were walking, the crowd became bigger. Uh, and it was not just a crowd of curious people following, but I think they immediately understood what it was about. Uh, and so we were sharing our booklets with uh, passerbys who were just joining us, but it's the power of that voice. The second station, the gentleman takes up his burden. We adore you, Dandy and we praise you but yes it's it's the power of everything it's it requires all your senses the fact that you're not just a viewer watching a performance you are part of the performance and it's a kind of communion the audience they become you know the people that were there haggling at, at Jesus as he's led towards his final crucifixion, which was at the slave tree, just before he was transported into the Sixpence Street. I used a lot of the rituals that I used to do as an altar server, but at the same time, the rituals of rugby. He's picked up in a, in a very like rugby manner. And it's celebrated, you know, like someone who just finished scoring a try. But it's met with this sense of gentle and roughness that I was trying to go for as well. Because I was also talking about how the blazer was used, yeah, as a symbol of hierarchy. So if you were first team rugby, you got the first team, you know, uh, rugby scroll. And if you had enough, you got an honours blazer. So you had braiding around the edges of your your suit. So it was clearly used as a signifier to other people that you could also be like this if you do the right thing. Gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. We returned to the company's gardens once more to complete our walk with Mbongenium Charlie. The journey that he takes, it's one in which he's sort of attempting to shed s certain forms of masculinity, but also seems to take them on. Oh, absolutely. Visually, as we're watching the performance, we're not seeing a movement from invisibility and occlusion and the space of violence to this kind of hopeful other space where he's suddenly free. We're not seeing the reverse of that either, but we're seeing how those things are constantly in tension with one another and are pushing up against one another. And you know, it's a story that's not unfamiliar to me either. I went to a private all-boys school in the late 80s. And as a, one of, what, four or five black students at that school when I started, I was also constantly in that zone where you're kind of addressing and making sense of your blackness in relation to the space that is symbolically white. And leaning into some of those aesthetics and practices is a necessary strategy of survival, right? It's a tactic that, that, that people at the peripheries use to basically manifest ways of living livable lives, using what one needs strategically, tactically, and also rejecting other things entirely. But it's never one or the other. I know you are moving a fair bit between Joburg and Cape Town at the moment. Tell me what's next, where you're going to be, and what are you working on? Yeah, so 
I've finished working at Zeitzmoka and um, now I've started a company with my ex-boss in the fashion department at Zeitzmoka called the African Fashion Research Institute. Our, our, our point is to archive fashion histories within Africa and we're using the digital as a platform. And I guess I've I felt that there was a lot of support and a larger response in Johannesburg. And that has put a scene in my head of like maybe to try and see what the fashion and the art scene looks like in that sort of space. The work that I'm doing is still carry on with the idea of, 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 of masculinities, but it's it kind of centers fashion a lot more than I than I did in my previous work. Yeah, and um, I'm just trying to see how clothing relates to histories within South Africa. Where do where do where does suit production come from in South Africa? How does it relate to the the, the once burgeoning garment manufacturing sector in Cape Town? But also just, you know, trying to take a pragmatic approach as well. Just trying to see how can my work exist within spaces? How can it disrupt the wide cube? And I'll say it quite honestly, wide cubes. It's 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 the space where I think disruption always needs to be prevalent. I believe a true artist can make work that relates to society, but at the same time doesn't necessarily have to be political. You're creating an idea of a future, of a, a space that's not here now, a way forward. I think an artist should be able to be as fluid as that. I'm so grateful for the time you've taken to to be with me today and also everything that you've shared and spoken about. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. The ICA podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is edited and produced by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode includes Smooth Stone by Blue Dot Sessions, Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, arranged and performed on the harp by Amy Turk, as well as the Toccata and Fugue performed on the marimba by Desmond Chan. Next time, we'll be chatting to performance artist and activist Uma Sopotela. See you then, and thanks for listening.